Before 1900, no evangelical Christian believed that it was normal for Christians to speak in tongues. Let me repeat that. Before 1900, no evangelical Christian of any standing believed that it was normal for Christians to speak in tongues. In the days of Charles Spurgeon and D.L. Moody, no serious Christian gave this idea a second thought. All of that changed in 1900. That year, the Bethel Bible School opened in Topeka, Kansas, with 40 students, led by a Methodist pastor named Charles Parham. During their studies, the students concluded that the sign of the baptism of the Holy Spirit must be speaking in tongues. And one of the students there, at least one of the students, actually spoke in tongues. And Parham took this message on the road and began to spread it far and wide. And uh, he met during his travels a lay preacher named William Seymour in Houston, Texas. And Seymour became convinced of Parham's teaching that speaking in tongues was the evidence that a person had truly been baptized by the Holy Spirit. Now, Seymour was a holiness preacher. And today, most of us don't really understand what that means. Seymour preached in circles which held to the doctrine that a person could be completely sanctified. They taught a second work of grace. And by means of that second work of grace, a person could be completely sanctified. He could become sinlessly perfect. Uh, during my years at Bob Jones University, I, I, I roomed with a fellow across the hall that believed that he was sinlessly perfect. He believed this doctrine. And those of us who roomed around him, we had a lot of fun reminding him in certain ways that he wasn't really sinlessly perfect, uh, that his sanctification wasn't quite yet complete. Anyhow, Seymour was called to help a small congregation in Los Angeles. And when he began to preach that speaking in tongues was the, the true sign of complete sanctification and the baptism of the Holy Spirit, it was not popular in those holiness circles, and he was locked out of the church. But he found a few souls willing to listen and he persevered in seeking this sign. He had not yet spoken in tongues himself. And at a little meeting in a house on April 9th, 1906, Seymour and seven others fell on the floor in religious ecstasy and spoke in tongues. And that sparked what evangelicals now call the Azusa Street Revival. Beginning with what happened in that home, meetings continued constantly for the next three days. Crowds grew so large uh, that they couldn't get into the home. They actually had to find another location, and they did at Azusa Street Mission, hence the name of the movement. And most of the Pentecostal denominations that 
developed in the early 1900s trace their origin back to these two events, the Bethel Bible School in Topeka, Kansas, and the Azusa Street Revival in Los Angeles in 1906. But you need to understand that up through the 1960s, speaking in tongues was still confined to a corner of evangelicalism. Only if you were a holy roller, only if you were a, a, a Pentecostal did you speak in tongues. But again, that changed on Sunday, April 3rd, 1960. Dennis J. Bennett, rector of St. Mark's Episcopal Church, mark that, St. Mark's Episcopal Church in Van Nuys, California, recounted his personal experience of speaking in tongues to his congregation in his Sunday message. And he repeated that in his next two Sunday messages, which included Easter Sunday. And many of his parishioners followed him in speaking in tongues, which caused a great stir in his denomination, and he was forced to resign the pastorate of that church, and the resulting controversy and press coverage drew awareness to what was going on, and pretty soon this was a thing in many of the mainline, and get that, in many of the dead mainline denominational churches. And often it happened more or less like this. Uh, there would be lay Bible studies going on in those churches, and someone in those lay Bible studies would speak in tongues and they would become convinced that this was the thing, and they would bring it to the Bible study and say, you've got to try this, and soon everyone in the Bible study was speaking in tongues, and then it would go through the church. And once people had had this experience, there was no teaching them anything else. And so many churches that had once either been dead or had been Bible-believing had had, and, and had no, no tongue-speaking going on were converted in a matter of weeks. I saw it happen time and again in the community where I lived in western Pennsylvania when I was a teenager. And so in the 60s and 70s, the charismatic movement swept this country. Now, I've recounted all of that history to make this point. The situation in which we find ourselves today is almost precisely the opposite of what it was in 1900. Today, most evangelicals accept that speaking in tongues is normal. Even if they're not Pentecostal or charismatic, they would have no problem with the teaching that, that Christians speak in tongues. And so a church like ours that rejects speaking in tongues, we may very well hear the question, why don't you speak in tongues at Midway Bible Church? Or at, at the very least, why don't you believe that Christians can speak in tongues? And we find the answer here in 1 Corinthians 14. So let me read again the first five verses of this chapter using the wording that I used last Sunday that's based on a distinction between the singular, a tongue, an ecstatic utterance, 
and the plural tongues, which refers to the genuine gift of languages as it was used on the day of Pentecost. So get that. That's the distinction. A tongue referring to an ecstatic utterance. Tongues, the spiritual gift of languages as it was used on the day of Pentecost. Beginning in verse 1, 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 1. Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. For he who speaks in an ecstatic utterance does not speak to men, but to God. For no one understands him. However, in the spirit he speaks mysteries. But he who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. He who speaks in an ecstatic utterance edifies himself. But he who prophesies edifies the church. I wish you all spoke with languages, but even more that you prophesied. For he who prophesies is greater than he who speaks with languages, unless indeed he interprets or translates that the church may receive edification. Now, as I explained last Sunday, Paul was in no position to simply tell the Corinthians, just stop it. Just stop with the tongue speaking already. Many in the church were loyal to other pastors, to other teachers, and they would not have heeded Paul even though he had planted the church in Corinth. And so Paul had to persuade. He had to explain to the Corinthians why they needed to heed what he had to say. And so the verses before us reflect that kind of an approach. These verses explain why they needed to stop speaking in this ecstatic speech. And so first of all, in verse 1, why don't we speak in tongues? Because of the preeminent place of love. Because of the preeminent place of love. Now verse 1 gives us three simple directions. Very straightforward. The first is a summary of the entire 13th chapter of this letter. Pursue love. As I told you last week, the verb pursue here is a very strong word. It means to to seek to obtain something with, with perseverance, to chase it down, to refuse to give up. Usually in the New Testament, this word is translated persecute. So it's the idea of chasing it down. I like the way one commentary puts it. Seek with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength to love. And then coupled with this strong exhortation to pursue, agape is an equally strong commandment to desire spiritual gifts. And the word translated desire in our New King James Version is the word from which we get our English word zeal. Some of the modern translations add the word earnestly, earnestly desire spiritual gifts. Other other translations add the word eagerly, eagerly desire spiritual gifts. So there was nothing wrong with the focus that the Corinthians placed on spiritual gifts. 
as we learned as we toured through chapter 12, the Holy Spirit has given all of us spiritual gifts. The Holy Spirit has given all of us ministries in which we can exercise those gifts. We need to be eager to develop those gifts in ministry to others. But the most important point about these first two commandments is that they form a couplet. They must be understood together. Pursue agape love and eagerly desire spiritual gifts. It's all one thing. And the verbs are plural. They are directed to all in the church. We all should desire to find and use our spiritual gifts because that is the practical way toward agape love. It is the more excellent way that Paul spoke of at the end of chapter 12. The more excellent way of demonstrating our love is by using our spiritual gifts to build up others. If you tell me that you love God's people, but you are not involved in a local church, if you're not involved in ministering to people in some way in a local church, then your words ring hollow. These two exhortations put the focus on ministry in a local church. There are Christians who seem to think that they can exist apart from a local church. Not if you're obedient to the New Testament. And then there's a final commandment here in verse 1 that seems to kind of take a right-hand turn. It indicates that if we eagerly pursue spiritual gifts as a means of demonstrating agape love, then we will focus prophecy. Now, as I mentioned to you several times last week, here in, in the first half of 1 Corinthians 14, Paul is going to compare and contrast three things. Genuine, the genuine gift of tongues, the counterfeit gift of tongues, and prophecy. It's a threefold comparison, a threefold contrast. So he's going to come back to prophecy again and again and again in this chapter. So we need to get a handle on what he means by the spiritual gift of prophecy. Now, we explored the gift of prophecy just a little bit a few weeks ago at the end of chapter 13, but we need to dive into it a little bit deeper today. So the spiritual gift of prophecy in the New Testament is no different than prophecy in the Old Testament. You know, what's interesting is there are 155 references to a prophet or prophets in the New Testament, and most of those references are to Old Testament prophets. Jesus and the, the apostles, they refer to the Old Testament prophets all the time. They use the word prophet and prophets all the time. But they use the very same words to speak of the New Testament gift of prophets. And in fact... The Old Testament gift of prophecy extended into the New Testament. Who was the last Old Testament prophet? 
John the Baptist. Jesus himself. Old Testament prophecy. The New Testament. So, Old Testament prophets were the mouthpieces of God. They spoke by direct revelation of God. Think of the phrases that are used repeatedly in the Old Testament to describe a prophet. The word of the Lord was with him. And more often than that, thus saith the Lord. Such prophets spoke infallibly. If anything that they spoke was false, either a prediction did not come true or it did not align with the law of Moses, the books that Moses had written, then he was a false prophet. And New Testament prophets are no different. They were the mouthpieces of God. They spoke by direct revelation from God. The New Testament gift of prophecy was necessary to fill the gap from the start of the church to the completion of the New Testament. Okay? Can I repeat that? The New Testament gift of prophecy was necessary to fill the gap from the start of the New Testament church to the completion of the New Testament. During that period, God had to be able to direct local churches. And the apostles couldn't be everywhere. And so in order for God to be able to give direction, in order for God to be able to to adequately minister to to local churches, there were prophets who, who, who had direct revelation from God. Notice, notice verses 29 and 30 here in 1 Corinthians 14. It says, Let two or three prophets speak and let others judge. But if anything is revealed to another who sits by, let the first keep silent. Now I want you to notice a couple things about that verse. Notice the verb, first of all, in verse 30. Revealed. So even here in the New Testament, as the gift of prophecy functioned in the Corinthian church, when prophets spoke, it was because God revealed His Word to them. These prophets weren't simply preachers like me or like Dr. Bob or Brother Dale. They spoke by direct revelation of God. And then another couple of details. Notice the description in verse 30. It suggests that their prophecy was spontaneous. You had a couple of prophets speaking, and and God spontaneously revealed something to another one that was sitting by. Now, I don't know about you, but that's not how preaching ought to be done. I wouldn't want to be listening to that kind of a preacher. If you think that's how preaching is done, you've got the wrong idea. I spend a lot of hours getting ready to preach up here. It's anything but spontaneous. That's one of the major differences between preaching and what the New Testament describes as prophecy.
Uh, now, I realize that some of you have been taught a different view that what I, than the one that I just outlined. You, you've been taught that the New Testament gift of prophecy continues to function today in the form of preaching. I believe that prophets today are no longer infallible. They simply foretell, preach the Word of God. But here's my concern. My concern is that that view compromises the sufficiency of Scripture. Because particularly today, in Pentecostal and charismatic circles, you have people who believe they have the gift of prophecy, and they believe that they are getting direct revelation from God. They believe that revelation from God continues today. And at times, they believe that they can tell people on a personal level what they are supposed to do. I mean, it's almost like a, a, a evangelical fortune-telling. I mean, it's bad news. And so to protect the inspiration and sufficiency of Scripture, we need to understand that direct revelation from God ceased when the New Testament was completed. The gift of prophecy as it functioned at that time, it is no longer functioning today. So whatever view you hold, whether you, whether you, you believe that prophecy ceased as I do, whether you believe that it, it continues today, don't lose sight of, of the point that Paul is making in verse 1. He is saying if we pursue love... If we eagerly desire the gifts that demonstrate agape love, then we are going to emphasize prophecy. We are going to emphasize direct revelation from God in human language. And today, that emphasis comes to us through this book. The New Testament as revealed by God through apostles and prophets and inscripturated in this book. So get what I'm saying. You know why we don't have tongues here in our services? Because this book, the teaching and preaching of this book, this is what edifies and builds up believers. This is the most loving thing that we can do in our services thing that we can do in children's church. This thing we can do in Good News Club. Not ecstatic speech that makes no sense. And so the first point, the first reason that we don't speak in tongues at Midway Bible Church is very simple. It's because Paul teaches us the most loving thing that we can do with regard to to the, to the gifts of the Holy Spirit is to emphasize the gifts that have to do with the Word of God and getting the Word of God into the lives of people. In verses 2 through 5, Paul answers this question in a second way, and that's by pointing us toward this, this three-sided contrast that I've talked about, that I mentioned last Sunday. And Paul looks at this three-sided contrast from two different perspectives. 
He looks at it, first of all, from the perspective of ecstatic tongue speaking, the, the counterfeit gift of tongues, and then he looks at it from the genuine gift of tongues from that perspective. Okay, So two different perspectives. First of all, we're going to look at it from the, the perspective of ecstatic tongue speaking. Now, I need to go back and review maybe a little bit. When, we, when I talk about ecstatic tongue speaking, you understand what I'm saying by, the, by that word ecstatic? So oftentimes when people speak in tongues, they empty their mind of things. They kind of surrender control. And the idea is that, that, that you, you kind of surrender control. You kind of lose control. And you end up, you know, saying these, these nonsensical syllables and so forth. And this has been happening, folks, for centuries. This is what happened in the mystery religions of the ancient time. Corinthians that were in the church at that point had, had, had experienced this kind of ecstatic experience. In the mystery religions, they had worshipped in while they were pagans. And they were taught in those mystery religions that when this happened, they were united. This ecstatic experience meant that they were united with a God. And so when they became Christians, they assumed that this experience, this ecstatic experience, meant that they were now filled with the Holy Spirit. They were controlled and filled with the Holy Spirit. So that's what we're talking about. So Paul begins in verse 2 with an implied contrast between these counterfeit, ecstatic tongue speaking, intimate gift of tongues as it was practiced at Pentecost. Notice verse 2. For he who speaks in a tongue in an ecstatic utterance does not speak to men, but to God, for no one understands him. However, in the spirit he speaks mysteries. So as Paul begins to examine what was happening at Corinth, it's obvious that whatever they were doing in Corinth, it was not the same activity that happened at Pentecost. You remember what happened at Pentecost? The Holy Spirit used the 120 from the upper room to proclaim God's glory in various human languages to thousands of Jews who were gathered in Jerusalem. The 120 had never learned those languages. They were primarily Galileans, and yet each Jew heard the message in his own language. That is not at all what we see here in verse 2. So we have three points of contrast here, okay? So first of all, at Corinth, the tongues that they practiced were directed to God, not to human beings. In fact, in verses 14 and 15, Paul alludes to praying in a tongue, praying in an ecstatic language. And many Pentecostals and Charismatics today practice what they call tongues in private. They don't even do it in in services. They regard it as a private prayer language. And this idea seems to have gotten its start in Corinth. But speaking in this way is not what happened at Pentecost. There's a direct contrast here. And what's what's so interesting is, 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 is how this has developed 
from the beginning of the Pentecostal movement. Those 40 students that studied this, you know, at that, at, at that Bible college back in Topeka, Kansas, they were studying. Happened in Acts chapter 2. That's what marks the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And today they're saying, well, I have this private experience and, and, and it has nothing to do with what happened at Pentecost and it's, you know. Paul says, you're right. It's different. You're, whatever you're doing, you're talking to God. What happened at Pentecost, they were talking to men. They were, they were talking to, to Jews from all over the world. Second point of contrast. No one understands him. Again, this is you can't get a more direct contrast than to what happened at Pentecost. The miracle at Pentecost was just exactly that they did understand. Everyone who gathered at the sound of that mighty rushing wind heard someone giving glory to God in his own language, and they were astounded. Here Paul says, nobody understands you. Nobody understands what you're saying. And the no one here even extends to the person who is speaking in tongues. He doesn't understand it himself. Again, notice what Paul says in verse 14. For if I pray in a tongue, in an ecstatic utterance, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. So nobody understands it. He doesn't even understand it himself. But at Pentecost, I believe the person who was speaking understood what he was saying, but those that heard him understood what he was saying in a different language. And then the last point of contrast, this person is speaking mysteries. Now, many Bible scholars who believe that Paul is describing the legitimate spiritual gift of languages throughout this chapter, they really wrestle with this statement. Because the word mystery is used consistently by Paul to speak of a truth that was hidden from human understanding in the past that has now been revealed in the gospel age. But if no one understands... As Paul has just said, not even the person speaking, how can it reveal anything? Paul seems to be contradicting himself. It doesn't make any sense. But again, I think we can unravel the mystery here. We can unravel the, 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 the problem by understanding that Paul is using the word mystery in a different way here. Paul is using the word mystery here to refer to what happened in the mystery religions that some of the Corinthians were involved were in the Corinthian church. And Paul, interestingly, says in this verse that they speak to a God. Here's how, here's how you can actually translate the first part of this verse. For he who speaks in an ecstatic utterance does not speak to men but to a God, little g, because there's no article there in the original language. And normally in the New Testament, 
when Theos is speaking about the true and living God, it has the article. And so Paul could be saying, with your ecstatic utterance, you're speaking to a God just like you did when you were in the mystery religion. So that's the contrast between counterfeit tongue speaking and genuine tongue speaking. In verses 3 and 4, Paul contrasts ecstatic tongue speaking with the gift of prophecy. And this contrast centers on which of the two edifies the church. Notice verse 3, it says that prophecy, prophecy profits in a number of ways. It edifies, it builds up believers. It exhorts or encourages, and the root of this word is the same uh, root as as we use for the Holy Spirit, paraclete. The paraclete is one who comes alongside to help us, encourage us, strengthen us. And then finally, the effect is to comfort. All of that is what comes from prophecy, whether you believe that prophecy is preaching or whether you believe, as I do, it was the spiritual gift of, of a prophet from that time who got revelation directly from God. On the other hand, verse 4 teaches us that ecstatic tongue speaking that was going on in the Corinthian church did not have these effects. It did not profit in terms of, of edification and encouragement and comfort. In fact, the only person that was edified by this ecstatic tongue speaking was the person who was speaking in tongues himself. But have you ever asked yourself your question, how is the person who speaks in tongues actually built up if he doesn't understand it himself? You know, preachers get many comments after their messages. Some are encouraging. Some are questions. Some come to disagree with you. Some are humorous. I used to get a lot of humor from Terry Gilbert uh, after after messages. Uh, but the ones that get me... Somebody will come up to me after a message and say something like, I didn't understand a word you said, but it was a great message. That seems to be what what had been going on at Corinth. They didn't understand a word that they themselves had said, but what it was, it was a great experience. And if you talk to Charismatics and Pentecostals, and I have... It seems that that this kind of ecstatic speaking in tongues kind of gives some kind of an emotional lift to those people. For many of them that I have talked to, it seems like it reinforces their faith somehow. But we know that this experience also can have negative effects. It engenders spiritual pride. This is obvious from what was happening in the Corinthian church. I have a spectacular spiritual gift and you don't. Ha, ha, ha. 
you know, this kind of a spiritual experience can function like a pump to pump up the ego. And if, and if you know, if you've talked with charismatics, you, you, you understand this. There is, a, there is a, a spiritual pride that basically if you haven't spoken in tongues, you are a second-class Christian. So the statement that Paul makes here in verse 4 is a devastating condemnation of the use of ecstatic tongue speaking. The person who practices ecstatic tongue speaking in, in a public service is interested only in edifying himself, Paul says. On the other hand, the person who eagerly desires the gift of prophecy, who is concerned with, with making sure that, that, the, that the Word of God gets to people, that person wants to edify and build up the entire church. And this contrast ought to put a full stop to the practice of ecstatic tongue speaking in any church, period. I'm talking about in a church service. That simple contrast right there. The fact that ecstatic tongue speaking is just going to build up that individual, but proclaiming the Word of God is going to edify everybody. It is not something that ought to take place in a public service. And then as we come to verse 5, we turn to the second contrast here from the perspective of, of genuine tongue speaking. And Paul begins verse 5, and you got you got I know it's I know it's been a long service, but you got to listen to me here. Because Paul begins verse 5 with one of the most misunderstood statements in the entire Bible. I wish you all spoke with tongues. Because this is the one the charismatics of the Pentecostals say, ah, ah, see there, you can't tell me not to speak in tongues. But I want you to think about it. After his devastating condemnation of the selfishness of ecstatic tongue speaking in verse 4, how can Paul say such a thing? In the space of one verse, Paul seems to completely shift his ground if you think that he's talking about ecstatic tongue speaking right from verse through verse 4 through verse 5. He was headed north and now he's headed south. He said no in the strongest possible terms and all of a sudden he says yes. I mean, just think if there were no verse break between verse 4 in the original, remember, the verse breaks are not inspired. The Apostle Paul didn't put a verse break there. So read with me. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. But I wish you all spoke with tongues. A person who would say that would have to have schizophrenia, or to use a biblical phrase, completely double-minded man. And I can guarantee you the Apostle Paul was neither of those. 
Well, you say, well, how do you dodge the bullet? You dodge the bullet by grasping the point that I made last Sunday. As Paul begins verse 5, he changes the subject. He is no longer speaking of a tongue. He is no longer speaking of an ecstatic utterance. He is now speaking of tongues, plural. He is now speaking of the genuine gift of languages as it was practiced on the day of Pentecost. And he is contrasting ecstatic tongue speaking, making the point that the genuine gift of languages can edify the church. If the correct method is followed. Verse 5 says, He who speaks in a tongue in an ecstatic utterance edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. So I wish you all spoke with a genuine gift of tongues, languages, like it was practiced at Pentecost, and that you could translate that language so that all would be edified. That makes sense, doesn't it? Part of the reason that we have difficulty understanding verse 5 is that our English versions translate the word interpret, and it can just as easily be translated translates. But there's not only an implied contrast between counterfeit tongues and the legitimate gift of tongues here in verse 5. There's also a contrast between even legitimate tongues and the ability, uh, excuse me, and the gift of prophecy. Paul seems to envision a situation in which someone, by means of the legitimate gift of languages, comes into the, to the church and speaks a language that at least part of the congregation do not know. And he says, prophecy is better than that because everybody knows it. And remember, you know, I think this is where it's it's difficult for us in our culture to grasp part of what's going on. Remember, Corinth was a very cosmopolitan place. There were people there from all over the world. There were people in that church that no doubt spoke all kinds of different languages. So it would have been very easy for somebody to come in and, and speak in a language that part of the congregation understood. So think about it. I mean, you, you have to use a little bit of sanctified imagination here. So let's imagine that in our congregation here, 25% of the people, their, their original language, their birth language was Portuguese. And so we have a, we have a missionary from Portugal, and, and he preaches in Portuguese. Now, would that be a good use of our time as a congregation? 25% of the people can understand them because that's their birth language. Is that what we ought to do? is going to preach in Portuguese, then we need to translate so everybody else. That's what verse 6 says. It says when we translate, then there will be revelation and prophecy and edification. I've been in this very situation myself. 
multiple times in my life. I, I went to Haiti on two different mission trips and preached each morning at like 5 a.m. How many of you would be willing to get up at 5 a.m. to go to special meetings? I'm not even sure how those people got there in the dark. And I preached in English, and of course there were a handful of people that would have understood me. Most of them came with me on the trip. But in order for the congregation to hear me, they had to translate. Same thing when I went down to Cancun, Mexico for several days. In addition to to preaching in their midweek service, I I spent many hours each day training the preacher boys that that, uh, Marco had at that time. And in every one of those cases, Marco had to translate my, my English into Spanish so that the people could be edified. So even, there's a difference even between the legitimate gift of tongues and the gift of prophecy. Because prophecy always edifies. The Word of God in our language always builds up. But even someone who has the gift of language is not ours. If that is going to to edify us, that language has to be translated so we can be built up. The secular religion of our day has been labeled expressive individualism. How many of you have ever heard that? It's the idea that an individual's values, what the individual values and thinks, is more important than anything else in the world. It's embodied in catchphrases like, follow your heart. If you follow your heart, you can't go wrong. Only you can make you happy. And believe me, as American Christians, we have imbibed some of this secular religion. Yes, we have. We see it in how much we think, even as Christians, in terms of fulfillment and how little we think in terms of sacrifice. Let that one sink in. We see it in how much our Christianity is focused on the individual rather than the church and the body. Think about that. American Christianity is almost purely about the individual as opposed to the church and the body. And when you understand that that is the viewpoint of American Christianity, then I think it's hard to find fault with using a spiritual gift like tongues simply to build myself up. It's all about me. 
It's all about whatever builds me up. And so it shouldn't surprise us that in the culture in which we live, that the Pentecostal and charismatic movement has come to the fore. Because it plays right into that individualism that it's all about me and it's all about my experience. But Paul's single-minded focus in 1 Corinthians 14 is on the edification of the entire local church. It's on the edification of the body. And whatever we do here at Midway Bible Church, this must be our single-minded focus. There is a reason we are Midway Bible Church. This is the most loving thing that we can do because this is the way that we can build up every believer. And so I hope that you pray for the proclamation of the Word of God each Sunday. I covet your prayers to that end. You know, it's so easy for us to pray personal level prayers. I preached about this on Sermon Audio this this week. I had a chance to prayer. They have a prayer group on Sermon Audio, and I had a chance to address that group on Friday. Pray on a personal level. It's so easy to tell God, I want this, I need this, this is what I need. It's so easy to pray things at a global level, at a kingdom level. Would you pray for the proclamation of the Word of God? Would you, would you pray for a revival of, of, of the religion, true religion, Bible religion around the world? Let's pray big prayers. Let's keep our eyes off ourselves as individuals and on the big things that God wants to do. God's given this church a second lease on life. But not so we can look at ourselves and be in ground. God's given us a second lease on life. We can can look at big things. We can do things for Him. And that's what this Sunday has, has been all about, I hope, in your mind.